0: Well, thanks, Hans, for reading that. I want to add my welcome to Andrews. My name is Austin. I'm on the staff team here at Auckland EV. Uh, It's been a while since I've come up to preach, uh, and so I'm looking forward to uh, sharing with you all the things that God's helped me to see come this uh, passage. And so, uh, yeah, keep the passage open with you. We're going to be going through that uh, together. All around the world... Uh, today, there are many examples of leaders, Uh, and it might be leaders of school, it might be leaders within the business place, uh, it might be leaders of governments. And so often, leaders can be such a positive influence to those around them. But I want to ask the question, what happens when leaders fall? When leaders fail? Because the thing is, When leaders fail, the behaviors don't come out of nowhere. They come from what's on the inside, from the heart, or to put it another way, by your character. Even in New Zealand politics this year, we've seen a number of leaders step out from their position because of a moral failing. But I want to put it before you, there's an institution that's even more important than the government where it's even more important to have leaders of good character. And that's the church, God's household. Because the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth, and that truth is the gospel. It's the gospel that's at stake when the leaders of God's church are of bad character. And if you've been Christian for a while, you would know uh, the list of Christian leaders that have had moral failings continue to grow, whether it be Ravi Zacharias and his sexual misconduct, or Mark Driscoll and the accusations against him of bullying. And what's sad about this is seeing the damage that's done upon God's church, the fracturing of the faith of God's people as they see those who are supposed to be leaders of the Christian life fall, and the, repro- the reproach that's brought upon God's gospel As those who look upon it, see the failure of these leaders and think that the gospel is not worth it. Now before we get into the text, some of you might be thinking that the passage is not for you. Uh, Maybe even during the Bible reading, you might have zoned out a little bit because you started hearing this list of qualifications. But I want to put it for you. Uh, That while you may not be a church leader, and while you may not even be an overseer, whatever that is, uh, hopefully all of us trust in Jesus, whoever trusts in Jesus, have a deep concern for his church, for his gospel. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, we looked at what it means to get the gospel message right. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, we looked at seeing uh, how do we get our gatherings right, and in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're looking at how to get the leaders within God's church right. Because let's remember the purpose of this letter. We read it out. Take a look. Chapter 3 verse 15, it says this. But if I, Paul, should be delayed, I've written so that you, Timothy, will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. God's church is a pillar and foundation of this incredible truth of the gospel. If the church of God does not behave the right way, then its function as an upholder of the truth is impaired, which is why it's so important to know how we ought to conduct ourselves in God's household. It's why we titled this series, God's House, God's Way. The upholding of the gospel is at stake, so let's pay attention to what God has to say in his word and ask for his help, that we might understand it by his Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us your word, that by it, by your Spirit, we might be able to understand and know what it's like, know what's on your heart. Uh, And we pray, Father, that you would help us to really hear with open hearts, and from this come away more transformed in the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. The first point that we're covering today is the titles. So if you're taking notes, it should be in your outlines, the titles. Because I'm not sure if you noticed, uh, there are two uncommon words in the Bible that were in that Bible reading. It's the words uh, overseer and deacon. Uh, And the passage talks about the kind of qualities that these people have. So it's probably important for us to know who's actually being mentioned here. Let's start with overseers. Uh, I want you to come with me to Acts chapter 20. We'll look at a few particular verses. They should be on the screen. It says this. Now, from Miletus, he, Paul, sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said, in verse 28, Be on guard for yourselves, for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Now, as you look at that passage, I wonder if you can see something interesting in the passage. Um, so remember, the one who wrote Acts is Luke. Uh, look at how Luke chooses to call the people that Paul is speaking to, and look at how Paul is choosing to address them. Uh, Taylor, I've highlighted them on the screen. Luke records that Paul summoned the elders of the church. To Ephesus, of Ephesus, But just a few verses down, Paul refers to them as overseers. And I wonder if, what's going on. Is Paul, are Paul and Luke of different minds? Maybe uh, Luke records that, oh yeah, Paul said this, but I'm trying to correct him. He's actually elders. Uh, no, I don't think that's what's going on here in the text. I actually think this office of elder, overseer, they're actually the same thing, they're synonymous terms. And in fact, if you look at Hebrews 13, 17, write this down, look it up later, Hebrews 13, 17, it simply calls this person leader. So whether you call them the elder or the overseer or leader, it's referring to the same thing, it's referring to the leader of God's church. And at EV, we call them pastors. Now, I know what you might be thinking, like, pastor is not elder overseer or leader, so where on earth did we get that title from? Uh, take a look at Acts chapter 20, 28 again. I've highlighted one word on the screen. Uh, one of the roles of the overseer is to shepherd the church of God. And it just so happens if you take the Latin of that word shepherd, because why not, Right? <laughs> You get pastor. That's actually where we get pastor from, it's this idea of shepherd, shepherding. So when you see that word overseer in our passage today, you can think of it as the role of pastor here at Auckland EV. And who are the pastors here at Auckland EV? Quick shout out for a newish connect like Andrew said, it's a really great place to get to know our pastors and the church structure. But the pastors at EV, they're the impastors, they're Andrew, Ben, and Ming, and the senior pastor, Rowan. Uh, you would have noticed that Andrew introduced himself as one of the pastors here at Auckland EV. And that's because at EV, we don't just have one pastor. It's not like you saw Andrew and you thought, oh, he's the pastor for this congregation. No, we actually have a team of pastors. We have a team pastoring model here at EV, and the pastors oversee different areas across our church. But what about the word deacon? Well, the word deacon is actually just a transliteration from the original language, where it can also just mean servant. So I put some verses on the screen. I won't read them all out. You can see I've highlighted the same word. It's translated either deacon or servant. So in Mark 10, we see Jesus challenge his disciples to be servants. Same word as deacon. In Romans 16, Phoebe is commended as a servant or a deaconess of the church in Cancray. And in Philippians 1, Paul addresses his letter to the Christians in Philippi, but specifically gives a shout out to the overseers and the deacons or the servants. And probably the classic example that people use for deacon are the people mentioned in Acts chapter 6. Write it down, Acts chapter 6, look up the story later. Here, the 12 apostles appoint seven people to the duty of serving, so that they can be freed up to continue preaching the word of God. But even in this story, I don't think it's conclusive whether those seven men were actually appointed to this office of deacon, Uh, But feel free to chat to me more about this. Uh, I don't think the Bible necessitates the office or the church needing an official role of deacon. And at EV, probably the closest thing that we have to that are the people on our exec team, Uh, people who represent the church looking after governance, property, or finances. But the point is this. uh, This passage isn't about what labels we can attach to uh, people at church. I think the point of the passage is that we see that the gospel is transformative. And it ripples out from our hearts, out to one another, and to the world. And it all starts with our leaders and those who serve serve in the life of church. So now that we know who we're talking about in this passage, let's take a look at the kind of people a pastor and a deacon should be. This is point two, the tests. Uh, come back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. We read, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. And the first thing I want to point out, might be a surprising thing, is that wanting to be a pastor is a good thing. I'm not sure if that surprised you, that actually desire, having that desire to be an elder, overseer, pastor is a noble work. Now, I remember when I was a young Christian back in 2015, I had just been uh, on fire for Jesus, really keen to serve him. I started stepping up and serving roles at church and on campus. Uh, And I remember I actually thought of becoming a pastor uh, back in 2015. Now, I don't think my 2015 self would make a great pastor, uh, but I actually remember thinking that and going, is this really right for me to desire? Like, oh, I felt a little proud thinking that maybe I can't be a pastor, maybe I'm, I'm not cut out to be one. But here, Paul is commending the work of a pastor. It's a noble work. And so, men, I want to specifically address you here for a moment now because like we saw last week in 1 Timothy 2, the role of teaching and exercising authority in the public gathering, the church, falls on you. Uh, I want to ask you, have you aspired to be a pastor before? Or is it something that when you look at the likes of Andrew and Ben Ming, you think, oh, there's no way I'd ever want to be that. Um, <laughs> you can tell them later if that's the case. <laughs> Because I want to hold out, being a pastor is actually one of the best jobs in the world. It's a job where you can get this opportunity to lead God's church, to teach people about God's word. And I want to ask, men, what steps are you taking to grow in this way? Have you ever thought about stepping up to lead a connect group? Or maybe reading the Bible one-on-one with someone else? Or maybe even doing the summer internship? Remember, the pastor isn't just leading the government. They're leading something much more profound, the church of the living God. And it's a noble task worthy of aspiration. Now, from verse 2 onwards, we see a list of qualities that the overseer has. And you might notice as you scan through this list, these qualities are actually all qualities that any ordinary Christian should aspire to. Uh, As Don Carson, a New Testament scholar, said, I like what he said, he says this, it's remarkable how unremarkable this list is that we're about to read. And so as we go through these characteristics, this is a good list uh, not just for the pastors to go through, but for any Christian, whether male or female, to grow in. And so let's take a look at verse 2. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach. There are a few different ways to divide up this list of qualities, but I think they, uh, one way to do it is they all fall within this list, this idea of being above reproach. And what does it mean to be above reproach? Uh, it doesn't mean to be sinless, because like we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul called himself the greatest of all sinners. So that would immediately rule Paul out, uh, and that would be very strange indeed. Uh, no, being above reproach means being above accusation. Remember the context of this letter of 1 Timothy. The church in Ephesus, where Timothy was, contained leaders, false teachers, who were bringing reproach and disrepute to the gospel. They were people who were not only teaching the wrong thing, but they were acting with character and behavior that was so horrendous that they were dragging the church of God down and dragging the gospel through the mud. The pastor, Paul says, should be the opposite of that. Their conduct should not bring that kind of reproach and disrepute to the gospel. And there are three categories in which uh, the Christian leader should be above reproach. All rippling outside from within, we see above reproach with regards to self, above reproach with regards to family, and above reproach with regards to outsiders. So let's start by looking at above reproach with regards to self. Look at verse 2. And so overseer must be self-controlled, sensible, respectable, not an excessive drinker, not a bully but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. We could spend a lot of time looking at each of these individual aspects that each could be a talk on their own. And so, I want to encourage you after the service over the morning tea, chat to people and in your connect groups throughout the week. Uh, what does it look like to grow in each of these characteristics? Let's go through them quickly. Self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. It's this idea of being disciplined in your excess passions with the help of God's Spirit. And these excess passions, they could be anything. They could be food or money or exercise or lust, alcohol, even hobbies, anything in excess. Sensible, meaning that you're level-headed. You're not overly reactive, but you're tempered. Respectable, meaning that when people look at you, they hold you in high regard. You evoke feelings of admiration, that as people look at you, they're going, man, I want to imitate that person as they imitate Christ. Not an excessive drinker. This doesn't mean that a Christian leader can't drink alcohol, but it does raise the question, is it excessive? Not a bully, but gentle. When you disagree with someone, Are you forceful and imposing? Or are you gentle? Not quarrelsome, meaning that you're not known for excessive bickering and pointless arguments, and not greedy, or more literally, not a lover of money. Notice that being materially rich is not condemned here. What's called out is actually a love for money. And the flip side of this is, are you generous? with what you have. For me, as I was reflecting and looking over this list, uh, it was actually the last one that stood out to me as I was thinking through, yeah, what could I keep growing in? Uh, because some of you who know me well, yeah, you would know um, I'm what you call a control freak. Um, <laughs> I love things being ordered. I love things being laid out nice and neatly in nice boxes. I love being planned and organized. It's so great. Uh, Just uh, a a few holidays uh, this year, actually. um, I actually took the time to look at my uh, library and go, wow, I'd love to catalog this. So I actually went and um, put them all in a Dewey Decimal System and then just ordered my library that way. And it was just great, great rest. Um, Might not be great rest for you, but (laughs) it was fantastic and cathartic for me. But one of the ways that this controlling nature plays itself out is actually it gives me anxiety with, uh, am I secure? Where's my security? Uh, And it's so easy for me to buy into the lie that money sells, which is I can be secure if I have a lot of money, if I have a lot of savings, or if I have this house. uh, And I'm tempted to love money because of it. Even now, especially after entering full-time ministry, after i just finished my PhD, I could have gone into academics, could have earned a lot more money, uh, and it was the sort of stage of life where friends around me started talking about buying houses, and I just started getting a little envious. I started feeling like, man, did I make the right call? Maybe I should just quit ministry and just go back into academics. Um, Because what I really wanted was security. But the Bible reminds us that the security which money claims to provide is false. It could be here one moment and gone the next, just like we saw with the, when the COVID pandemic uh, hit and a lot of stocks fell. But there's incredible security found in Jesus Christ. For it's in him I know my future is secure. And so because of that, I don't need to be pulled by a love of money. And I want to ask all of you here today, What from that list of qualifications stands out to you? I want you to take some time. Just write one. Write one thing down in your notes, on your phone. What is one of these areas that you would like God to grow you in? And then I want to encourage you, take some time throughout the week to actually pray that God would grow you in these. Because if you're a Christian, if you trust in Christ, then His Spirit dwells in you. And God, by his Spirit, is transforming you day by day into the likeness of his Son, Jesus. So that was a, with, uh, above reproach with regards to self. Moving outwards, we have above reproach with regards to family. Look at verse 2. An overseer must be the husband of one wife. Or perhaps a better translation of it, uh, a one-woman man. Now, Paul isn't saying to Timothy that every pastor must be married. Uh, It's very likely that Timothy was single, and Paul was definitely single. So that would be very strange to require that. Uh, And even the most godly person who walked on this earth, Jesus, he wasn't married. Uh, Now, I think what Paul is doing is highlighting the type of person that an overseer should be. And I think the point of the verse is this. A pastor must be faithful to his bride if he hopes to be entrusted with the bride of Christ, which is the church. Friends, uh, a governing official, a president, a counsellor, they might be able to have an affair and keep their job, but not so for a pastor. They may be able to be forgiven if they repent, but they shouldn't be reinstated. Because, like I already mentioned, they're not trying to run the government they're leading something much more profound. The church of the living God, which holds out the truth of God, not just by what you say, but by how you act. Verse 4 also says this, He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how he take care of God's church? Similar to the idea of being a one-woman man, I don't think Paul is requiring that pastors be married people with at least one child. But he is saying, if you do have kids, you need to be able to manage them well, to have them under control with all dignity. I think what Paul is saying here is that if you don't discipline your children, then how can you hope to discipline the church of God? If you can't manage your own family, then how can you manage the family of God, which is the church? So we've looked at being above reproach with regards to self, now with regards to family. Uh, And now we move outward again, being above reproach with regards to outsiders. In verse 3, we read that pastors must be hospitable, that is, to love the stranger and what this means is that for every pastor and also every Christian, because like I have mentioned already a lot of these qualities can be applied to Christians, every pastor is to extend the welcoming love of God. I think Romans 15:7 says it nicely. It's on the screen, it says this. Therefore welcome one another, just as Christ also welcomed you to the glory of God. And so I want to ask How are you going at inviting others to your home? How are you going at chatting to the newcomer at church, of uh, chatting beyond your usual friends that you chat to? As Christians, let's all grow in this uh, ability to be hospitable because Jesus Christ loved us and welcomed us even when we were strangers and enemies to him. We also read in 1 Timothy 3.7, Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. And so I want to ask the question, how do those outside the church view you? What kind of person are you uh, at the supermarket, in the workplace, at the football game? Do your actions and speech reflect well on God's church? or do they reflect poorly on it? Once again, it comes down to whether or not reproach is being brought upon the church of God, leading to bringing the gospel into disrepute. And how you conduct yourselves among outsiders will impact that. Now, the qualifications for deacons in verses 8 to 13, they're very similar. I encourage you, like I said, keep chatting in your connect groups about what this looks like because we've barely scratched the surface. But before we move on to the next point, I want to highlight one distinction that is made between the overseer and the deacon. Uh, And it's at the end of verse 2. It says this, An overseer, therefore, must be able to teach. Uh, like it is just hidden away between hospitable and not an excessive drinker. This skill of being able to teach. Uh, it's not that I think uh, deacons shouldn't teach, but particularly for the pastor, they must be able to teach. And particularly as you think of the context of this letter in 1 Timothy, you can see why being able to teach is so important. Because Uh, Like we saw in chapter 1, there were false teachers in the church. They were teaching false doctrine and distracting from the truth of the gospel. So it's no wonder that the leader of God's church must be able to hold out the truth and communicate and teach that to others. Now, earlier this week, I decided to look at some job ads on SEEK. Uh, And no, it's not because I want to leave this job. (laughs) Um, But I thought it was fitting, because we're going through this passage. Uh, Here's one. We're looking for a person who is highly organized, proactive, proficiency in Microsoft Office and Google products is required. Uh, Here's another one. This one I thought was great. This unique opportunity calls for three Ps, an infectious personality, adept problem-solving skills, and unyielding persistence. Sounds like a great person. How about this one? He must be faithful to his wife. He must be self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, not a bully but gentle, not a lover of money." I mean, wow. Why, how different is that? How different is this qualification of elder or deacon compared to other job roles? You can see that almost every, character he, uh, every trait here is a character trait. Which highlights how important God thinks of character for the Christian leader. And I don't know about you, but after hearing all of those qualifications and characteristics, it'd be so easy to feel discouraged, to feel like we so f- fall far short from the standard. For me, as I was prepping the sermon, uh, I particularly felt that weight. Some of you may know I'm currently working part-time for church and doing, finishing up my theological education part-time. Uh, my official title is student pastor, uh, which basically just means that I'm still studying to be a pastor. I don't have any official weight of being a pastor, elder, or overseer here at EV. Um, and actually, part of me is very relieved that that's the case. Uh, just looking at the qualifications, I, I just can't help but feel inadequate. Why am I cut out for this? Uh, that perhaps maybe after finishing my studies, I just shouldn't uh, enter into uh, be a pastor. Now, just checking, Rowan's not here, so <laughs> just. Um, but no, thankfully, our passage ends with a great reminder of the time that we're in, and this is our last point. It's the time. Because like we saw earlier in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul outlines the purpose of this letter, how he wanted to write to see, uh, to help the church to know how to conduct themselves because the church, as God's household, holds out the truth. And after mentioning the truth, Paul follows it up by quoting what is most likely a hymn, which spells out some of the essentials of the truth. Hear this in 1 Timothy 3.16. And most certainly, the mystery of godliness is great. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, there are several ways to interpret uh, this hymn, but the big picture is clear, isn't it? Jesus Christ is central to the gospel. While the false teachers were focused on myths and pointless genealogies, Paul was focusing on the mystery of godliness, which is no myth. It's the gospel. And it's all about Jesus. Hear this, because it's so easy to hear all these qualifications and characteristics and become moralistic. It can be so easy to feel like, I just need to do better, I need to work harder, I need to become better but what drives godliness, what will drive striving for these qualities that we've looked at, is not just trying harder, but by looking to Jesus. Jesus, who humbled himself to take on human flesh. Jesus, who was raised to life by the Spirit and therefore vindicated or confirmed to be the Son of God in power. Jesus, who is seen and now worshiped by angels. Jesus who was preached among the nations, and because of that, people believed in him, bringing Jesus' glory. This is the amazing reality, that God's word is powerful and will accomplish its work. That even now, as I'm preaching to you with all of my flaws and failings, I can trust that God's word, by his spirit, is doing the work of transformation in your lives. Did you know almost every time uh, we run our Explaining Christianity course, uh, someone puts their faith in Jesus? It's happened almost every time over the, over the many years that we've run Explaining Christianity. And we have around 30 to 40 people coming along to explain Christianity right now at the University of Auckland. Uh, And we're running another Explain Christianity course uh, at North coming up soon, and then another one later on at Central. And I'm just going to implicitly trust that as long as we continue to preach God's Word, God will continue to draw people to himself to see them saved and trust in Christ. Because one day, the same Jesus who came in humility will return in glory. And he'll return to judge the living and the dead. I wonder after you heard this passage, what do you think is the greatest need for our church leaders? I think a minister by the name of Robert Murray McShane summarized it well. He says this, My people's greatest need is my personal holiness. What a great summary of this chapter. Because as I mentioned at the start of this talk, the list of church leaders who have had moral failings continues to grow. And the list of people who have walked away from Jesus and his gospel because of those leaders grows even longer still. So friends, I really want to ask you, our pastors, Rowan, Ming, Andrew, Ben, they need our prayers. All of our church leaders, our staff team, our apprentices, our exec team, our team leaders, our kids and youth leaders, our connect group leaders, they all need our prayers. You know, in our church survey that we run, ran in May uh, earlier on this year, we found that less than half of the people at church pray regularly for our church leaders. How amazing would it be for all of us to continue to regularly pray for those who lead us within church? Pray that they would keep looking to Jesus and therefore resist temptation and grow in godliness. For we know that Satan is prowling around like a roaring lion, ready to take down our church leaders. For he knows that in taking down our church leaders, he can take the whole church down. I know I speak on behalf of many of our leaders that we desperately need your prayers. Hardly any leader I know feels like they're up to the task. There's always so much that we can continue to keep growing in. But praise God that he is in control, And he is powerful to change. So please, pray. And pray also that God would raise up more leaders for his church. Whether it's inside our church or outside our church, here in Auckland or around the world. Leaders who would be motivated by God's amazing truth, the gospel. And leaders who would have a desire to see more and more people captivated by Jesus Christ. Because it's all about him. So why don't we take some time to pray about this now. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us godly, faithful leaders here at Auckland EV. And we ask God, we pray for them now, our pastors, for Andrew, Ben, Ming, Rowan. We pray that you would continue to sustain them in the faith, to help them to continue to grow in godliness and to resist temptation. We pray for all of our leaders who do the loving work of serving and leading us, and we ask God, sustain them and help them to fix their eyes on Jesus. And we pray as well that you would continue to raise up more leaders, men and women who have this great heart for Jesus, to see his name held up high here in Auckland and around the world, so that more and more people put their trust in him. in the mighty name of Jesus Christ that we pray all these things. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful and if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.